This is Increment Vice. The podcast that explores Paul Thomas Anderson's inherent vice, one scene at a time, with your host, Travis Woods. Bogart and Bacall, Tracy and Hepburn, Sinatra and Gardner, Burton and Taylor, Phoenix and Witherspoon? Well, maybe, our host thinks, as he drifts password into the secret history of Hollywood with today's very special guest. Exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. That's how today's guest describes You Must Remember This, the absolutely essential podcast she created and has hosted since 2014, the same year PTA's Inherent Vice was released. In it, she explores those secret histories and how they dictated the public and private lives of the people living within them, creating empathetic portraiture interwoven with clandestine Los Angeles-bound narratives. And isn't exactly that, which so much of Inherent Vice's capital P plot is about secret societies with secret histories from broadly conspiratorial entities like the Golden Fang and Vigilant California and the LAPD, right down to mundanely debauched secret sex lives of bored LA real estate big shots and coke-dusted, tax-sheltered dentists. Which is all to say that we are extremely lucky, and I am absolutely delighted, not only to have today's guest on the show, but especially to have her on for this particular scene of Inherent Vice one of the first in which we begin to feel the force of those secret histories and societies guiding the lives that we're watching on screen. In fact, she's perfect for it. And so, with all that said, I am happy to welcome author, critic, journalist, podcast host, and the only other person I know besides myself who trawls eBay for copies of Robert Mitchum's sunglasses, Karina Longworth. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. We're very lucky to have you. And so... We'll just dive right in here. Inherent Vice. Very strange movie. Very, very, very uh, weird. Very wacky. Very open to obsession, obviously. <laughs> and um, one of the things we were talking about just before the show is it's a confusing film. And not the most easily digestible film in the world. That said, a big part of this show is to to try to find inroads by seeing how other people interpret the film and how other people look at the film. And the first thing I wanted to talk to you about is when did you first see it and what did you think about it? I first saw it at a press screening, you know, probably a month before it came out in um, a Beverly Hills screening room in the kind of corporate building that it, you know, is is treated in this movie as being sort of an ominous container of <laughs> of 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 secret societies that are running things. Yeah. Um, and it was weirdly on a Sunday afternoon, I remember. Um, and I think I, to be quite honest, dozed off a couple times. <laughs> um, but I, that sort of aided the movie in a weird way. You know, I mean, one of the things I find about this movie is that it's, it. every time I watch it, I find myself feeling disoriented. It doesn't ever get to be something where I like even though I do know what happens I've seen it probably four times and I've read the novel I do know what the plot is I always find myself kind of getting hypnotized anew by its pacing and by the sort of stony feeling of it and I end up feeling sort of just as discombobulated as the Joaquin Phoenix character 
Which is not a bad way to watch the movie, no? No, I think it's perfect. And I always really, really enjoy watching it. But I always find myself feeling lost in the middle of it. Did you read the book before you saw the film? Yeah. Do you? How do you feel like it translated? I really enjoyed the book when I read it. I probably read it about two years before I first saw the film. And, but I, you know, the book is sort of, I guess, I mean, I, I guess what I'm saying is that it's an excellent adaptation <laughs> because the book has kind of the same sort of thing where like you, you kind of like get lost in details or in scenes or in vibes and then you lose sight of like the giant picture. Or at least that's how I feel about it. Did you have a preference or do you have a preference? I think I probably films? prefer the movie, but. Bless your heart. Right. <laughs> um, but part of that is just I don't really reread novels very mm -hmm. often, but I definitely rewatch movies. And coming in today, before we, we sit down and we watch this scene, you had mentioned that you love Reese Witherspoon in the movie. Was there anything in particular that drew her scenes or drew you to her scenes or that she got your attention in a certain way? On some level, I feel like Reese Witherspoon in an inherent vice is peak Reese Witherspoon. <laughs> it's sort of this like microcapsule embodiment of what I think some Reese Witherspoon some Reese Witherspoon fans, including myself, love about her, which is that on one level, she seems like an all-American, blonde, beautiful, um, almost like not angelic, but like straight-laced type of personality but then you have this sense that like actually there's there's something sort of wild under the surface um you know i think that like her fairly recent um and like i think only scandal is an example of of that where she um she was in a car with her husband and and they got pulled over right. and she she was she was drunk and she was recorded saying don't you know who i am in in like a very thick southern accent and you sort of felt like you're you were getting a sense of the real reese witherspoon but i don't feel like it hurt her at all if anything it helped her and made people like her more because it made people feel like oh she had like four glasses of chardonnay at dinner <laughs> <laughs> and and it just made her seem more fun yeah. and i think that in this movie you have her you know playing this this da um, who doesn't want to be seen, you know, with with Doc in public? But um, as we see in this scene, like she's able to literally let her hair down, and you kind of you get to like one of the reasons why I love this scene is I don't know if it's too early to start talking about this, but well, is well, there's, there's no rules. This is, it's there's this is about inherent vice. There are going to be so many okay. conversa <laughs> conversational cul-de-sacs, yeah, and little off off ramps we're going to go off on. So feel free. Yeah. So one of the reasons why I love this scene specifically is because I was just thinking about this watching it earlier today. Narratively, it doesn't matter that much. You're not getting that much information that's going to really feed into the plot. Um, but it tells you kind of everything you need to know about the relationship between these two people and what it what their life together is like and like why they kind of keep hanging out with each other, even though it doesn't make any sense. Exactly. And I love that dynamic. too. Yeah. And I'm really glad you're here to talk about this. <laughs> All right. With that, we're going to settle in. We're going to check out the scene and we'll be back to talk about it. Doc. Oh. I thought you'd never want to speak to me again. Mm. He's a, a 
mind talking to the FBI? Am I in trouble? I don't know, are you? It's an awful nice night out here at the beach. Soap and clean my feet. Ew. No, thank you. But then again, I could bring you a pizza. I can hear your pants squirreling. I'll be there in an hour. And wash your feet first. Screaming and yelling like that at Nixon again? Hillary's been on TV yet. Instant and wide credibility. Police have infiltrated into any group they want to. I love them so much together. I love them so much. <laughs> so, so much. And the movie, it seems like, I mean, the story of the movie, you're supposed to think that the other woman is is like his true heart. Right, but like, right. <laughs> I really enjoy this relationship. I mean, I get I get really moved and torn up by the Doc and Shasta stuff. But I think part of that, part of the point of that story is, as PTA has even said, it's the story about the old lady you know you're not supposed to be with, that you're mm-hmm. not supposed to get back together. You just can't let her go. Right. And, yeah, they have – but Doc and Penny, they have such a great dynamic. And Joaquin Phoenix and Reese Witherspoon, they have such an easy, easy chemistry. Um, you know, they were obviously in Walk the Line together like a decade before this. And before we go any deeper, I just want to say two things. A, how perfect – is Reese Witherspoon in this film. You're exactly right. <laughs> but B, I also feel like there should be some obscure French or German term that uh, cinematic term for the u- rare and unique pleasure that one gets from watching Reese Witherspoon bust Joaquin Phoenix's balls in a movie. <laughs> there's there's like a unique pleasure center in my brain that just goes off only, only, only when she's doing that. Whether it's uh, most especially when we first see them together on the bench and it's like a Cary Grant, Rosalind Russell, 
super stoned version of His Girl Friday <laughs> with her just machine gunning him with dialogue. I, I, I love them together so much. Yeah, it's really interesting to think of them as as a, a screen pairing, like mm-hmm. Catherine Hepburn and Cary Grant or something, like who should actually probably be making more movies together because yeah. they sort of complete each other in a in a really interesting on screen way. And you know, he's such a fascinating actor, but yeah. he rarely plays like part of a couple in a way yeah, that makes right. any sense. And she really gets a warmth from him, and just not. Uh, choose my words it's not that i don't feel his humanity in films i do i'll be destroyed by something like you were never really here you were never really here but the there's a warmth that i think that she gets from him and just there like i said there's just this easy charisma between the two that even when they're fighting like i just want to see them hug and make up i want to see them get to the couch and take a couple of black beauties and watch nixon on tv zonked out of their heads and but rewinding going back going back um I love that opening scene where I love how careful and guarded she is at first like when he calls her and can't even recognize his voice. Like that's the the nature of their relationship is also somewhat it's a little different. It's a little odd in that you it clearly they don't speak on the phone. They never see each other during the day. Like he even <laughs> gets upset when she meets him uh on the bench outside the DA's office because he's like you've never seen me during the day. The lights are always off. And I love how she doesn't even recognize his voice as he's picking the tar off of his feet, asking her to come visit him. And I thought it was such a clever device to have the reveal of Koi as this like mod squad uh, double agent in the midst of them, in the, the reveal of them together as a couple, because so much of so much of this film is about dual personalities and dual roles and double agents. And to see Coy Harlingen as his uh, his pseudonym, his alias Rick Doppel, which doppelganger, you know, for, <laughs> even for for pension, come on, buddy, you're, you're Thomas Pension. You could probably, I mean, I'm, who, I'm I'm nobody to criticize, but you you could aim a little higher than that if you wanted to. Um, but that said, uh, you know, th- this there there are a lot of doppelgangers in this film. There are a lot of is you know dual identities and is is it the hippie chick or the flatlander shasta is it the real estate big shot or the reborn philanthropist mickey wolfman is it a boat or a shadowy uh indo-chinese heroin cartel called the golden fang and so to present koi as a potential double agent during a similar thematic reveal of reese as um, what Sorlige in a deleted scene, she refers to her as a DA, a DA out in search of hippie love thrills. <laughs> I don't know. I just I found that to be such a smart welding of plot and character and theme in a way that, and you don't really think about it unless you're insane and decide to do a podcast and talk about it, and you're trying to like figure out what what is this scene even about. But I just I thought it was such a wonderful marriage of those three things. All while you're just having a blast watching them stoned out of their minds watching Nixon on TV. Totally. And th- I mean, that's what I think is so exciting about this this movie is is this feeling of like you get lost in just enjoying it and mm-hmm. and in enjoying the moments and you lose your footing amidst like all of the other things that are happening. And and, you know, the the 
technical detective plot, like the the place in history that they're at. And I think that in that sense, like it is, it is as much as this movie is sort of a fantasy and psychedelic in its its ways, like it is extremely historically accurate to what it was like to be alive in Los Angeles in 1970. Mm-hmm. You know, in this moment um, with Nixon, as we see in this scene, but also after the Manson murders, um, after Altamont, like. This feeling of of and it's something you know Joan Didion used this phrase a few years previous to this, but this idea of like the center will not hold like there we had this feel like you grew up feeling like society has a safety net that things can't get all that out of control, and then at certain points in history things start to fall apart and you start to wonder like what if this what if it's all falling apart? You know, is there anything that's going to provide any kind of stability at all? And I think that was the way a lot of people felt around 1970, and it's the way a lot of people feel right now. Exactly. And I'm, I'm very happy that you brought up Joan Didion, since I won't have to, since <laughs> I think I've brought her up in just about every episode <laughs> before this one, um, because I am obsessed with her. But I also think you can't... I don't know if you can talk about this era, and I don't know if you can talk about... The very unique subset of genre, uh, subset genre of film that is the '60s Hangover movie, mm-hmm. without bringing up Didion, and um, one of the things I said in the very first episode was that in you know the 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 yearbook quote that everyone throws out that's super pretentious in high school yeah. that reads Didion is you know we tell ourselves stories in order to live. What I actually like so much about this scene is it is one of the very, very few in which no one does that with Doc, yeah. and he gets to have a real connection with someone. And yet we somehow still, because it's pension, we still get a massive download of expositional narrative. And a big part of that is, as you said, everyone was kind of clamoring to make sense of the chaos that they were living in, and you know, a very large part of that was the anti-subversive groups of late 60s, early 70s, and so one of the another reason I wanted to talk to you about this scene, because you're a very smart person and maybe you can help me out with this, is there there seems to be a moment for everyone the first time they watch this movie. And I found more often than not, it's right around here <laughs> where it loses them. It's just an accretion of too many details and plot points and characters telling their stories to Doc and they just get lost. Whereas with you, it seemed like you, from talking to you, it almost seems like you enjoyed if and when that happened, that you kind of gave yourself like, you're like, you know what, I, 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 I don't, I, I, I kind of, I, I remember what happens in the book, but I don't know what's going on. I'm just going to enjoy Reese and McKean, and I'm going to ride this out. And I was curious, what was there a point in the movie where that happened to you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I tend to kind of give up on trying to follow the plot around when they meet Martin Short, the dentist. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but you can just enjoy that for the Martin Shorter. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is like that's at the point where I start just like, you know, it really is just being too stoned or <laughs> like <laughs> on like an unfamiliar drug trip. And you just have to just be like, I have to, I'm going to go with it from this point on and just see what happens mm-hmm. and and stop trying to 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 uh, be in charge of my own narrative, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, Um but yeah, I don't I don't think that that's ever bothered me about the movie. And I actually I think again it is it is a stylistic reflection of this moment in time and and a certain feeling of you by the time you get to the end of this movie like you're not even 
sure you remember what the point was of him starting to investigate this, but you get a certain kind of closure mm. and you get a feeling that like you get something typical of a film noir, you know, from the more classical Hollywood era where things are probably not okay. Like the ultimately the bigger problems are not solved, but enough is solved so that like a boy and a girl can just spend the night together. Exactly. And that's and that isn't that how this movie ends is yeah. Coy and his wife are reunited, but you know, when the movie does end, we are kind of back to what you mentioned earlier, which is, remember, Shasta's not who he's supposed to be with. <laughs> like, Shasta's the, the lady that broke his heart and ran off to be, uh, these are her words, um, the bought and sold whore of a millionaire real estate developer <laughs> and left him heartbroken. And Penny's kind of forgotten about after she does him this incredible solid of, sneaking him into the DA so he can look up records about Adrian Prussia and just saying all these sentences out loud even I'm starting to realize how confusing this movie is um, as I would say convoluted convoluted that's a yeah it's like a Rubik's Cube uh, and uh, I'm not sure if it ever gets if we all get if we get all sides of the cube totally solid by the end of the movie but that's mm -hmm. also part of what I love about it and that's also why I love that noirish ending where we're lost in the fog, like Doc and Shasta, and we're not really sure. Did anything really? <laughs> I mean, I guess the Harlingens are happy now, but Penny Kimball, she's out there in the fog somewhere wondering where Doc's at as he's cruising the boulevards of regret, as one character calls them, with his ex-old. And, you know, nothing is really resolved by the end. And I think that that is also, that's also part of the point, which, I mean, that's easy to say because that's the point of, like, every film noir ever is that nothing is resolved in every neo-noir ever but um i do i do i miss her uh, at the end a little bit like i'm as i said my heart still goes out to doc and shasta because i'm a sucker yeah. and i love how they are together but i do miss her at the end um but don't you think that like he'll probably spend like a weekend with shasta and then something else will happen and so he will see penny again I'm glad that you bring this up so that I don't have to sound even nerdier and crazier than I already do, which is, yes, I have often thought about what happens after the scene ends. And I imagine that Doc walks to, uh, you know, he goes out for a smoke or goes to the local head shop and he comes back and his bungalow is empty. Mm -hmm. And he just kind of looks around and nods and he's like, yeah, that was that was this week. This, that was this weekend. And now she's gone again. And now I got to call Penny and explain, you know, why I didn't answer the phone for six days. Um <laughs> But I also one other thing I wanted to talk about Doc and Penny is this is a this could be a very dark film and I love their unforced sweetness. I love how kind they can be with each other. I love in that he's almost like a lovable dog. <laughs> and I love in the the later scene with Penny when he's coming to her for help and he's pretty sure uh, he's like the FBI has put this the FBI with the golden fang they put the snatch on Wolfman. He's in the Criscaildone. I almost said that without slurring. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he needs he needs help tracking down Adrian Prussia. And I love uh, that she is so excited that he has information that she doesn't. And she's, will you let me depone you? <laughs> and it, and I, love, I love that his response is, uh, because he, he, can be in, he can be loyal in his own way. I sure would. What is it? <laughs> I don't know. There's something so little dog-like about that that uh, he doesn't he doesn't even know what he just said yes to, but he'll do it because Penny asked him. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I there is 
there is an inherent vice sequel out there somewhere for me where <laughs> we just see their home life and we see them happy together. And I really, I, I if there's anything I complain ab- if I can complain about this movie, it is that the casting is so staggeringly good <laughs> from this doesn't sound like a complaint <laughs> well yeah okay well all of my complaints are going to be sort of complimentary because I mean, I'm, I'm doing a podcast on this show or on this film I'm, I'm i'm clearly obsessed with it if if i have a complaint it is that because the casting is so insane from martin short to reese witherspoon to eric roberts some of these characters who literally they only show up for one scene maybe three minutes and then they're gone and it, that in, a, in its own way makes sense why to cast someone that notable because you need them to stick in your head afterward. But if there is one thing about this movie that bums me out, it is that we will be introduced to this really dynamic, fascinating, incredibly portrayed character, and then they're gone. Right. And there is no performance or character that I miss more when it is off the screen than Reese Witherspoon in this film. And... That's what I mean when I say I could watch a Penny Kimball movie <laughs> or like, you know, it's too bad this movie was made five years ago and not now where we would get this movie and then we would get like a Netflix miniseries like the Penny Kimball Diaries, uh, uh, the dog at assistant DA about yeah. town. And um, yeah, I, I, I miss her when she's not around. And I'm getting the feeling you feel the same way with her performance. Yeah, totally. But I mean, I agree with you that she's not the only person that I feel that way about in this movie. Mm-hmm. I definitely, the first time I saw it, I was like, that wasn't enough Benicio for me. Oh, God. The funniest <laughs> joke, second funniest joke in the movie, and I have them ranked. The second funniest joke is when we first meet Sancho Smilex, as played by Benicio del Toro, coming into Bigfoot, Bjornfin's, Bigfoot Bjornsson's <laughs> office, and Bigfoot says, I've decided to kick Mr. Sportello. You're going to kick him? That's assault. <laughs> I, 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 am, I am an easy audience, and that is, that is so – and the, the, the thousand-yard stare he gives as he puts that together, the, the del Toro, it's, it's so perfect. But, yeah, I, I, I would watch a whole movie about Sancho and Doc yeah. just on the – I mean, I, well, I guess there is a movie that's called Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. <laughs> But um, I, I would love to see more of him. Or even, and I know that I can be in the mi- minority about this, when Martin Short dials anything up to 11, I am sold. I am uh-huh. there for it. When he's wearing a crushed velour suit and his pants are around his ankles as he chases his secretary with a bag of cocaine, I don't know what it says about me. I don't know what DSM-5 entry <laughs> covers this. But that is... That is a thousand percent my shit. That, yeah, I love that, and yeah. I I could I could totally 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 have a inherent vice three, the return <laughs> of Doctor Blatnoid, and yeah, that's perfect for me. Uh, well, aside for, aside from Penny, who are your heavy hitters, Penny and uh, Sancho? Um, Martin Donovan, also not in this movie very not enough not mm. in this movie enough for my taste. That's right. Um, but he, I just feel like he's not in any movie enough for my taste. Yeah, like, I, as a big fan of the Hal Hartley movies of the 90s, I don't know why Martin Donovan isn't a bigger star. I think we're in a second podcast episode. <laughs> like, this is a whole, this is, speaking of conversational cul-de-sac, this is something like, I'm going to start getting, like, hot and angry about stuff. <laughs> oh, you're, you're, you are so right. You are so right. My God. Um, so, as we start to wrap this up, do you have I, I know what my answer is and I this is something I want I, I ask everyone 
who gets to not everyone gets to to choose a scene the way that you did mm-hmm. but because you're special yeah <laughs> um you you know you said you you just said i really want something with reese i fell in love with her in this movie and i want something with her is this when you think of inherent vice do you think of this scene is this your favorite scene is this when when you go to this movie is this what comes up no, I wouldn't say that. I think that I wanted to explore this because when I watched it after you told me about this podcast, <laughs> um, I, I was reminded of how much I love Reese Witherspoon in this movie. But probably the first thing that comes to mind when I when I first think of this movie is the opening scene where she comes to his house and then the can song. People who are listening can't see <laughs> the giant yeah. emphatic nod and smile yeah. I just gave because that is my favorite eight minutes in any Paul <laughs> Thomas Anderson film. And when I first saw this on opening weekend, I I am not entirely sure that I blacked out with yeah. happiness, but I am pretty sure that I started like clapping <laughs> and like smiling so big that realizing that I was like, oh my God, he's making a Neil Young and Crazy Her- crazy Horse version of The Big Sleep. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. My. And then when, yeah, I mean, what's better than a big neon title card with vitamin C playing underneath it? Nah. Like, what's better than that? Like, what movie, I don't know, there's not a movie that you couldn't improve with a big neon title card. Like, regardless, <laughs> you know, uh, Citizen Kane. <laughs> Have that in like really bright green neon. Throw yeah. some can underneath. I'm not saying it's a bad film by any means, yeah, but I'm it could say- get better. There's room for improvement. <laughs> There's room for improvement. I'm just saying, PTA knew what he was doing. <laughs> he knew what he was doing when he when he made that intro, and he knew what he was doing when he cast Reese Witherspoon in this because. I don't, as as we've said, I don't know that there's anyone else that could bring out of Joaquin what she does, that, that easy warmth. It, you know, I don't know that I could, as good an actor as he is, as wonderful a performer as he is, I have a hard time imagining him just rolling around on a couch with someone who's wearing, yeah. his, sh- wearing his shirt uh, while he's rolling a joint. I don't know if I would believe it. I think he has such kind of a, um, he's got that Daniel Day-Lewis thing where... He's not human to me. He's right. He, I can't imagine him like walking down a street eating like a bag of M and M's or something like that. I can't imagine him doing human things. And that's why he's so great in something like her. Like mm-hmm. they, that's why you believe that he's falling in love with with Siri, basically. Um, because you could see him yeah. falling in love with Siri. <laughs> yeah. You might not believe him falling in love with uh, just any performer, but you can believe him falling in love with an iPhone, essentially. Uh-huh. And that's why, like, you need someone like Reese Witherspoon who just, she plugs something in with him. He gets electrified when she's on the screen. And, in fact, she even said uh, uh, in an interview, he, he spoke about how when they were filming, this was their first scene together um, for this, uh, in the shooting schedule. And her first words to him after their first take is, oh, that's, that's how you're playing this character? So I'm going to have to save this movie, too, just like the last one? Wow. Okay. okay. That's if that's how we're gonna do it. I guess that's how we're we're gonna play it. Okay. Fine. Fair enough. Take two. Take two. <laughs> Which just you know, again, I also can't imagine anyone else having the comfort level to say that to Joaquin Phoenix. Right. You know, um, maybe it's just the Joker trailers that have spooked me, but um, uh, yeah. Maybe yeah. she's secretly in that too. I don't know. I haven't seen it. I'm sure plenty <laughs> of people have seen it. Um. Yeah, well, yeah, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> um. Well. I, again, I have to thank you for coming and talking about this with me today. When uh, my producer, Blake, 
suggested that I was the only person obsessed and pretentious enough <laughs> to talk for about 45 episodes about this movie. And he said, make a list of people that you would talk to about this movie. Um, I gave him an initial list of like 15, like, you know, not cast and crew related, just 15. If, if I could, if, if wishes were horses and I could have anybody I wanted, and you were one of the people on that list. Oh, thank you. And I am so, so happy to have you on today. It is weird to hear your voice not talk about old Hollywood, but talk about uh, Joaquin Phoenix and Reese Witherspoon getting high on a couch. Well, so, I mean, I, I know that I have a really different voice when I'm not doing my podcast, because when I do my podcast, it's I sort of go into this character, you know, that is, I, I write for that character and then I read that character. And so when I'm speaking extemporaneously, like I am right now, I'm, I'm talking more in my normal voice. So uh, I hear that a lot. <laughs> well, no, I, I'm pretty, I'm convinced I'm talking to a human being right now. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. Pretty yeah. sure. Um, well, I do want to thank you for coming on today. Can I ask you two questions? Oh, oh. <laughs> Oh, one yes. is about one is about the content of the book and the film, and then the other is about the podcast. Yes, yes. Uh, um, my ego knows no bounds. So okay, ask ask away. So one thing is, I just don't remember in the novel. Do mm. they ever explain how Doc and Penny met each other? Oh yes, they do. They do, and I'm gonna show what a bad host I am <laughs> by also pointing out that I don't remember. Okay. Um, which is really embarrassing because I re- I reread the book like April of this year. Mm-hmm. Um, no, there 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 is a very the slightest filament of a backstory, and I think it's like a two sentence toss off in the middle of a paragraph introducing Penny. But I, for the life of me now, on the spot can't remember. And thank you for that, Karina, for <laughs> making me look so unprofessional. No, 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 no. I was just I because I just I like to imagine. But like watching the movie, I just I like to imagine like how it happened, you mm-hmm. know, um, and I wasn't sure I couldn't remember if Pynchon ever explained anything. But I like to imagine that they probably met in some kind of work environment. And then like maybe she was like at a bar at the beach and he was like, aren't you so and so? And then and her defenses were down. I like to imagine, and since we're just going to imagine better than we're, we're going to rewrite what apparently we feel Thomas Pynchon couldn't do just as well. Uh, I, yeah, I like, but yeah, I also get the idea. You know, she's clearly someone who enjoys risk on her off hours. She likes the idea of. I love in the beginning of the scene when, when you can tell that they do have this kind of flirtatious banter. When he's like, "It's an awful nice night on the beach," <laughs> and she's like, "But you're a dirty, filthy hippie. What would I ever do with someone like you?" There, I, I do like the idea that as initially kind of cold or distant or just, like I said, having that Howard Hoxie and like machine gun dialogue that just mows him down, that I could also imagine her kind of purposefully ending up in Gordita Beach one night, maybe right. kind of on the lookout. Yeah. Just, you know, if she bumps into someone, she knows she bumps into someone she knows named Doc. Accidentally on purpose. Yes. But also, um, I know you have another question, but before we get to that, I did want to mention one of the things that I do, that I really enjoy about the film, is you can tell how much PTA loves the book mm-hmm. and how he inserts all of these little Easter eggs into the film from the book without explaining them. It's never explained why Doc's feet are filthy <laughs> in the film and why he puts such a premium on picking tar <laughs> off of the bottom of his feet. And I don't know if you remember... But in the book, Gordita Beach, the fictional Gordita Beach, um, is overloaded with tar. 
mm-hmm. and oil that is spilling from the El Segundo oil refinery and has just flooded Gordita Beach. And so everyone's everyone that lives there, they either they have to make a choice where every three days, or excuse me, every other day, they have to scrape tar off their feet. Or if they're like Dinas, who uh, will let it accumulate until it's as thick as like a pair of sandals and you save yourself save yourself the cost of a new pair of shoes. Nah. <laughs> so anyway, anyone wondering why Joaquin Phoenix is picking his feet and why uh, Penny Kimball insists as he hangs up on her that she that he washed them, it's because he's been stomping around in El Segundo oil all over Gordita Beach all day long. And was that a real oil spill? Uh, no, it's not. It's it wasn't. It's not in an oil spill. It's just the general leakage mm-hmm. and pollution. And, and it's, uh, you know, I think it's one more of those corporate contaminants slowly oozing into paradise in Pynchon's novel that would is great in the book, but in a film that is already so stuffed right. with things to remember, that might have been maybe one visual metaphor too far. Right. So I think in the film, we're, we just look at it as, well, he's a dirty, filthy hippie, and he's got right. dirty, filthy hippie feet. Yeah, it totally makes sense that anybody who is just like walking around the beach barefoot yeah. all the time would have dirty feet. But I also remember growing up in L.A. in the 80s, and the beaches were really dirty then, yeah. so... Yeah. But hey, you can be you can be innovative like Dinas. You get yourself a, a free <laughs> pair of shoes by just letting it accumulate for a couple of weeks. Yeah. All right. You had one more question. Yeah. This is probably just silly, but you were saying that a lot of people you talk to about this movie kind of start to lose the plot around this scene. Mm-hmm. And I was just wondering if you're having trouble finding people who want to talk about like the second half of the movie. No, because there's there's a lot in the second half that's interesting, even if they're not sure how we got here you know it's i mean i think the big one for a lot of people is because it is it is both so memorable but easily inexplicable is the love scene between shasta and doc which you know i loved this movie upon first viewing uh but even i i I looked over to my girlfriend i was like boy this really took a turn (laughs) um (laughs) from what i thought was going to be you know kind of a long goodbye-ish um, last, uh, you know, I, the late show kind of film. I was like, what the hell? Is yeah. this, this got dark. Um, but no, there's there's scenes like that. Um, there's, uh, I mean, I, I probably the most popular one is Bigfoot eating Doc's plate of weed, uh-huh. which um, I'll bring it up here because it hasn't come up yet. I'm not entirely sure that's really happening. One of the thing, one of the biggest questions for me is how many interactions with Shasta and how many interactions with Bigfoot are real since right. we're already given the implication that maybe not every interaction with Sordelige is real, if any of them are. But yeah, those those two heavy hitters come up a lot, is hmm. um, Bigfoot eating the weed and then the the love scene. And then um, Martin Short, Martin Short comes up a lot. Yeah. Um, but no, I think it's more, it's just that, and it could have also been the very naked gunny Zucker Brothers trailer for the film. I think a lot of people go into this movie the first time expecting the Big Lebowski part two. Right. Or even the long goodbye part two. And then instead, it starts off that way. But very slowly, it's like the rope begins to fray. And the film starts to just do its own thing and find these very, very strange kind of sleepy rhythms that are not what people expect. And after one or two or three different people coming to Doc and saying, I need I need you to make sense of this story. I need you. Once we start getting to the disappearance of an artesian neighborhood, 
the disappearance of a real estate mogul, the disappearance of a saxophone player who's not really dead, but everyone <laughs> thinks he's dead, to this person's disappearance, to the, the golden thing, the boat disappearing. At a certain point, I think people just go, it's too much. This is right. not, you know, there, you know, there used to be a time in film where you could watch something and it would feel like there's like five different plots going on. And I think we are in a time now where things are a lot more streamlined and, you know, movies are, they're much more loglined. Right. Whereas this one's like, no, no, there's, there's probably 14 stories that we're going to, we're just going to keep checking in on and they'll all, right. you know. And characters. I mean, oh there's so God. many, so many fascinating, exciting characters in this movie. Um, and, you know, I mean, a lot of Hollywood movies nowadays, it's just like, it's about, uh, you know, there might be an ensemble cast, but they're all trying to, like, find the same glowing blue thing. You know, they're not, like, at odds with one another in any sort of interesting way. Exactly, exactly. And that's, again, I think that's why with a film like this, when you have, like, 15, 20 major speaking roles, that's why even if the person only has, you know, I, I think that Benicio Del Toro maybe has six minutes of screen time, yeah. total seven. But and you, he seems like a bigger character in the book, if I remember. He is. He's 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 much more of both. He and Dennis are much more like partners in crime, like Robin, mm -hmm. Robin to his Batman in a way. Especially, especially uh, Sancho Smiley. He's a much mm -hmm. larger role, and does a bit more than just give exposition about the golden thing. But um, he does it well in the. He does. It, <laughs> I mean, he's great in the film. But yeah, that's why you need capital F faces um, for so many of these characters. That's why you need. You know, I was looking at it today. I think Reese Witherspoon, I think she's in the movie for six minutes, maybe, maybe seven. She has th three scenes, four she's, scenes. She has three scenes. She has that great, very rat-a-tat-tat, Hoxian scene on the bench outside mm -hmm. the DA's office where she hands Doc off mm -hmm. to the FBI. She has this scene. And then there's that, like, what is it, maybe two-minute sequence where he bursts into her office and... Um, he, he needs her to go through the files on Adrian Prussia, and he mm -hmm. down, downloads her on where Mickey Wolf is at. And that's it. We never hear from her again. It's just three little beats, six, seven minutes, and she's out. Probably the equivalent of, like, two or three days' work at the most. But, again, you need someone like that because this film is so overwhelming at times. You're going to forget, like, who's who. And you kind of – and, I, and I, I, thought, I think that PTA very smartly plays with – well – they might not remember that she's Penny Campbell, but they'll remember that she's Reese Witherspoon. Right. <laughs> and because she does, as you say, say, give such a forceful that there is a little bit of that southern lady who's pissed off that she just got pulled over with her husband. <laughs> um, the Penny kind of, you could see Penny Campbell doing that. Like, I yeah. totally could imagine Penny Campbell throwing down on some CHP officer <laughs> uh, who, who just, she's just trying to get home and, and he won't let her, and she lets him have it with both barrels. I can totally see that, just the way she gives the talk. But um, if you do, you have any more questions for me? I do don't. I'm sorry. I, I kind of went into interviewer mode myself. But hey, no, that's 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 fine. It gives me an excuse to talk more about inherent vice, which apparently I, I don't do enough because <laughs> here we are. But uh, on that note, I want to thank you so much for coming in today. Um, your latest book, Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom, and Howard Hughes's Hollywood will be available in paperback by the time this episode airs so everyone should go read it it is really 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 good oh it's, thank you it's really really good karina doesn't reread a lot of books <laughs> i have reread this book it's very 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 good and if you prefer you could there's also a wonderful audiobook that karina reads um it's now available in paperback you can listen to her show at you must remember this podcast.com 
elsewhere. You can find her on Twitter at Karina Longworth and at Remember This Pod. That's P O D. And please join us next time for the Ballad of Rick Doppel, a snitch, a spy, a weasel, and dang if it ain't a resurrected tenor sax player working undercover. But for who? These patriotic pals of President Nixon called Vigilant California? Or is it some other unseen hand? We'll talk about it next time. Well, Travis might be a sucker for Doc and Shasta Faye, but it only took just under an hour for him to fall in love with the idea of Doc and Penny running off into a tar-stuck Gordita Beach sunset. Is it the magic of Witherspoon? Some weird mishmash of walk-the-line nostalgia and the couple's easy chemistry. Maybe, or maybe Karina's right. Some people just belong together on screen with their ball-busting and their unforced sweetness and their tarry feet. And Phoenix and Witherspoon sure fall into that pantheon. Speaking of faded couples, will Doc find the missing koi in the golden-fanged hills of Topanga and reunite him with his hope? We'll see what we can see next time on Increment Vice.